This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. That son of mine, Henry, his mother thinks he's an angel. <laughs> Kids married six months, still living like a prince. Found him with this. He said, champagne malt liquor pop. Looks, tastes, and sparkles like champagne. I told him, watch it, Big Shot. I'm not supporting you anymore. Turns out he gets champagne wherever beer is sold for just a few pennies more. Boy, that Henry. Some people just know how to live. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today I present my favorite pairing, wine and daylight. To make your Labor Day party cost-effective and fun, today we'll learn how to pair your favorite wine, mine's the pink one, from a real wine expert, the executive director of the American Wine Society, Dave Falchek. Before that, we'll cover why half a ton of weed was returned to the cellar, that may tell you which pot stock to drop. Then we'll throw a lifeline to one lucky caller before I amaze you with my knowledge and trivia on one. And now, two guys who are probably slightly intoxicated. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. We're intoxicated with podcasting. I am just giddy with podcasting. I'm drunk on love. At six in the morning. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Intoxicated on Stuff Other Than Whatever. <laughs> eh, that didn't work. Uh, welcome, to, w- welcome to another show. Hey, I'm Joe Salci. I show money on Twitter. And uh, it is early on the day that we are recording this, no matter what time you're listening. We're happy that you're here, though, OG, because we are talking wine today we talk food on monday wine today i'm a little bit of a wine guy when did you first start getting into wine liking it or getting into it liking it probably late 20s i was definitely later than that yeah i would say probably uh mid 30s before you you know what it was it was all those ipas and just how filling beer was and just i don't know uh and then i started wine with food once i once i figured out the wine food thing and how that just made some foods it's good with cereal, oatmeal, yeah. <laughs> eggs and toast, granola bars. Granola bars. It doesn't matter. Turkey sandwiches, salad. Yeah, all that stuff. Bacon. Which wine pairs good with bacon? <laughs> exactly. We should. We should ask. We should ask Dave that. Uh, thanks to ClearBank for supporting Stacky Benjamins. ClearBank is changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. It's a novel idea. 
If you're doing over $10,000 a month in revenue, find out how you can receive ClearBank Capital by getting your 20-minute term sheet at ClearBank with a C at C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C dot com forward slash S-B. It's so interesting the way that ClearBank works with entrepreneurs. We've got a great show today. We've got a piece from the New York Times. We've got a market watch piece in headlines. We're hitting all the big spots. And then we're talking wine with Dave Falchek. So let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first piece comes to us from the New York Times. And this is written by Neil Irwin. How the recession of 2020 could happen is the headline. It's kind of like how the recession of 2019 could have happened. Recession of 2018, 17, 16. Recession Mm -hmm. of 2015. Uh, Global pandemic. These three things are all true. All right. Neil writes, the United States almost certainly isn't in a recession right now. It may well avoid one for the foreseeable future, but the chances that the nation will fall into recession have increased sharply in the last two weeks. That is the... (laughs) unmistakable message that global investors in the bond market are sending longer term interest rates have plunged since the end of July, a shift that historically tends to predict slower growth interest rate cuts from the federal reserve and a heightened risk that the economy slips into outright contraction. Or it just means complete stupidity. I did see the other day that a 30 year bond was yielding something like 1.9 or something. You know what that says? S&P 500 yields (laughs) 2.2. Like why? What's going to do better? This thing that I borrow or the ownership of the 500 biggest companies in the United States? Depends on your time frame, but you're right. 30 30 years. years. A 30 year. That's the time frame. I'm I'm saying I'm willing to give you $100,000 in exchange for a thousand, two thousand bucks a year. In interest, if you promise giving my hundred grand back in thirty years from now, could you imagine any point in time where you would take that that same capital and just drop it into the S and P five hundred, and like what that would turn into just in I mean just in cash dividends in the thirtieth year, assuming you take all your dividends and you never reinvested it, like what would the dividend be in the thirtieth year? I'm there's a chart somewhere that says this, but I bet you it's some astronomical multiple of of that. You mean if you, if you never reinvested or if you're always reinvested? Never. I'm if you never, never did. Like yeah. you just took the cash. You're sure. like, well, I I need the I need the 2 grand a year for cash. So but, year 1 you take the 2 grand, but in year 2 your $100,000 has grown to, you know, whatever $110,000 or $108,000 and more cash. Capital. And now you get $2,200 of cash, you You're know, kind of playing the worst case scenario game. What if you did reinvest it? Bam. Yeah. I I oh, that's crazy. Okay. So you know what this so does? Apparently that means it's a recession. Well, I say that there's a whole bunch of dumb people out there. Well, we'll get back to that in a second. But what this what this does tell me is that if you missed the big long open window to refinance your debt to a lower rate before rates bumped up, you got another shot. There's time. You, <laughs> Do you, it again. You just got another shot because r- rates have gone back down again. Hopefully they haven't shot right back up by the time this actually airs, but, uh, but I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. This is happening in an economy, Neil writes that by most indicators is solid. 
The United States economy is growing at roughly 2% rate and keeps adding jobs at a healthy clip. There's no sign of the kind of huge, obvious bubbles that triggered the last two recessions, the equivalent of dot-com stocks in 2000 or housing in 2007. So there's going to be a recession in 2020 if the pessimistic signals in the financial markets prove correct. How would it happen? There are plenty of clues in the details of recent economic reports, in signals from the market, and in the recent history of recessions and near recessions. And before we get to these potential signals, huh. even in the- I just like the other thing you said. He like he this whole thing is about recession, or I'm gonna give myself a little wider berth. We're gonna have a near recession. I don't right. know what that is, but also I'll be right if it goes down at all, because then I can But that's why I like this piece. I like what Neil writes here because He's already presenting this as groupthink, isn't he? I mean, he's yeah. presenting it as uh, th- th- there's really no bubble. There's nothing going on out of the ordinary. But but you look at the bond market and everybody's going, uh, well, I got to be the first mover. I mean, this this seems like exactly what happened last fall. Chicken, chicken or the egg? Last fall certainly felt this way, didn't it? Maybe not. President Trump's on-again, off-again execution of the trade war with China and other countries is fed uncertainty into businesses' decision-making. Corporate investment spending is softening despite the big tax cut that Mr. Trump said would boost it. And the combination of central banks that are at the outer limits of their ability to stimulate growth and an inward term by many countries could make governments less effective at responding to a downturn. I remember something. So now, we're, now it's a global recession. Before we were talking about the United States, but now we're we all of a sudden are looking at it from a global perspective. Well, he's talking I like about the broad brushstroke. Well, remember, he started off with there's nothing going on in the United States that that would signal a recession. So now he's so saying, I gotta, so I got to find something. Dad, those interest rates in Luxembourg. Remember, he's saying never be too careful. He's saying how it could happen, not that mm-hmm. it's going to happen. It's potentially a self-inflicted wound type of recession, said Tara Sinclair, an economist who studies business cycles at George Washington University. But how deep that gash goes depends on many other characteristics of the economy and the policy response thereafter. There are parallels to the past. Often a recession results when some widely held belief about the world turns out to be false. 2001, it was that a technology boom would fuel the economy and the stock market indefinitely. Remember that? The old stats don't matter. The new economy. Remember those words? The new economy. You You don't don't have to make money. You don't understand it, OG. This is the new economy. Yep. Turned out the new economy was a lot like the old economy. Looks a lot like the old economy. (laughs) In 2007, it was that the housing market would never melt down across all regions at once. I remember that. Real estate doesn't- God's God's not making any more land. Doesn't go down. This time around, the belief in doubt is that the world will only become more stable and interconnected over time and that trade, currency, and diplomatic relations can be counted upon. Uh, What's funny is about this whole thing, and I'm going to stop right there. We'll just link to it in our show notes page, is that there's always a thing and we don't know. Well, you know, the market figures out a way to disappoint the greatest number of people, right? I mean, everybody who is saying that interest rates are going to rise, guess what? They didn't. And here's what happened. One of my favorite books on this topic, I've talked about this before. You probably don't want to get this book. It's called Trading Rules. It's from the 90s. It is dry as a bone. But the guy who writes it makes some excellent 
bullet points about things that you have to do if you are an investor. And by the way, this is a guy who trades commodities, something that is far more risky than 99.9% of the people listening invest in. And this is what he said. You have to give away that you know anything about what the market's going to do tomorrow. And once you give that away, you become a far, far better investor. Yeah. Because when you give it away, you're number one, more fearful because you don't know, which you should always be fearful. If the market's high, you see people get all excited when the market's high and they put money in. No, you should be afraid when the market's high. By the way, you should be afraid when the market's low. You should always be afraid of the market tomorrow because of the fact that that makes you a better investor who pays more attention. And on the other side, it also gets rid of this thing that we all want to do, which is predict what's going to happen next. I feel like Neil, as I was reading that to you, didn't you feel like Neil was given this by his editor? Like we got to have something about how this next recession might start. And it feels like he's grasping at straws. Well, this, this might be how it starts. Maybe. Sure. The answer to this is sure. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's whatever it's could be. When do you know that you're in a recession? When you're in it, just as recently we were talking about last fall, I'm sure that a lot of people late into the year last year, as the market was going down and all the news was negative, I bet you that most people said or thought, well, hey, this might be the recession. Like this might be a little bit of a decline. And as fast as you kind of sorted that out was as fast as it recovered. You know, now that doesn't mean just because that happened, that doesn't mean that that's going to happen that way again, because the folks in 2008 in January went, oh, that kind of stung. And then February, March and then July, like, oh, I guess I guess this was probably the bottom. And like the market was like, yeah, cool. You haven't seen anything yet. Watch this, you know, (laughs) watch what I could do now. (laughs) Stand by for demonstration of relevance. (laughs) And the market finally bottomed in March of 2009. There weren't a lot of people dancing in the streets going, you know what? This feels like the bottom. I bet you it's all uphill from here. (laughs) You know, it was like, this is the end of times. You know, I like reading articles like this, though. I like reading about how this stuff might happen. But here's the way I like it, OG. I like it the way I like looking ahead at Michigan State's football schedule. October 5th. Full of hope and optimism. Absolutely. October 5th, Michigan State plays Ohio State. And I think if Michigan State can come into that game undefeated and take out Ohio State, then we roll into Wisconsin through Penn State, take out those losers in Ann Arbor, uh, November, what day is that? November 16th. Then good things are happening. But I expect... You know, I, I just reminded myself of a great quote, and I wish I could attribute it to whoever said it. Hope is what a man feels just before he learns all the facts. <laughs> well, and, and that's actually kind of my point, is that I read this article the same way I read this. I'm like, okay, yeah, that could happen. All right, I could see those those Or I happening. could get past all that and be undefeated. <laughs> I, in 2020, I don't bet money on any of that happening, but I think, yeah, okay. All right. Neat. Like it's always fun to look into the future. Like when I was seven years old and I found out that someday we'll have these little cards with our money on it, not a credit card, but a bank card. And we'll actually swipe it through a machine for our groceries. Like how cool would that be? I remember thinking, yeah, okay, that's cool. Did I do anything about it? Did it affect my life? 
No, it's kind of science fiction. I think this is kind of science fiction. Fun stuff. Uh, second piece comes to us from Market Watch. This one is written by Max Cherney. Wall Street's, did you see this? Wall Street's latest billion dollar pot company had a half ton of bad weed returned as it was going public. The company is having its IPO and a half ton of bad weed got returned. The newest cannabis company on Wall Street, Sundial Growers, sold a half ton of pot that was returned by corporate buyer Zenibus Global because it contained, listen to this, visible mold, parts of rubber gloves, and other non-cannabis material. Sounds like the hot dog industry in the early, was it Upton Sinclair? The, the meatpacking industry. Yeah, Upton Sinclair with the uh, uh, the jungle. The attempted sale would be the equivalent of 10% of sundials, ticker symbol SNDL, total second quarter cannabis sales of five metric tons. 10% of their weed was bad. Hmm. That batch of cannabis would be worth roughly $1.9 million, assuming a price of uh, $5 per gram Canadian. Sundial has not disclosed that a shipment has been returned. A spokesman for the company didn't return requests for comment. Sundial announced earnings last week. and, and I'd say their profits went up in smoke, Joe. <laughs> I think... Uh, this again shows that while we have seen cannabis stocks, some of these stocks go through the roof, OG, it's still the Wild West, man. Oh, yeah, the industry is still brand new. That's right. Just such the Wild West. Uh, invest with care if you're going here. Sundial shares struggled on the open market, falling more than 30% from the IPO price the first day of trading. If you're a shareholder, you sure hope the shares will go high. <laughs> See what he did there? I think uh, that's lesson number one. Lesson number two is uh, reading these these tea leaves about when the next crash is coming. Buddy next to you at work telling you exactly how it's going to happen and how they got out already. Might be a little lunacy there. Smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. Dave Falchek, upstairs talking to mom, OG. He's the director of the American Wine Society. American Wine Society is a big group of passionate wine explorers who believe, I love this mission statement, wine discovery is a fun and lifelong adventure that should be shared. Mm -hmm. I, am. I don't disagree. Although, have you ever gotten toward about halfway through a bottle of wine at a party and you're thinking, I kind of want to finish this myself. <laughs> I don't want to share this anymore. That is, that's when you find you're transitioning from wine sharing to 12 steps. I mean, just because it's good. I don't mean because you're oh. a raging alcoholic. Oh, good. <laughs> just to define that. Yeah. yeah. You're like, hey, guys, I put all the good wine in this box in the fridge. You can help yourself. There's a spigot and everything. I made it really convenient. It's awesome. Uh, Dave's been the executive director of the American Wine Society since 2016. He began writing about wine in the early 1990s in the Finger Lakes. Love that wine region. Great uh, upstate New York wines, mm, some good white wines. Let's say hello to the guy who's going to make your Labor Day party even better by picking out a good wine for less money. Dave Falchek. 
And on his way down to the basement, it's about time we got him here. Dave Falchuk joins us. How are you, man? Oh, hey, Joe. I'm doing great. You know, I was just talking to mom upstairs. She was telling me how back in the day she drank enough Matus to fill the neighbor's above ground swimming pool. I'm surprised she remembers those stories because <laughs> because I think the answer is yes. But the fact that she can remember what happened then was uh, was fantastic. She mentioned something about, you know, Joe wouldn't be here if <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to take it that far. This is a family show, Dave. So on Monday, we had Frankie here. I'm so glad we got you here today because, you know, we're going into Labor Day. We've got the burgers. We've got the sides. We've got the picnic table. All we need now is a great glass of wine. However, you and I know that a lot of people walk into a wine shop and we're flipping lost. I mean, we're completely lost. So where where do we start, my friend? Well, I'll tell you first, let me apologize on behalf of wine. You know, wine is just one of the most, if not the most complex consumer product out there. And it's unfortunate. You know, don't worry about how much you know or don't know about wine. You can still enjoy wine without taking a class. But to your question, you know, what do I take to a party? Parties today, it's, you know, it's still summer, still warm. Parties are still during the day. And let me tell you, my wine of choice to bring to share is uh, really Vino Verde spelled V-I-N-H-O, the Portuguese way, because it's a wine from Portugal. It is usually fizzy, it's usually white, and it's usually crazy and expensive. It's fun. It's the kind of wine, I'm not going to say it's going to knock your socks off or that it's going to be the best wine you ever had, but it's going to be the kind of wine you can enjoy in the middle of the day and say, you know, this is really good. I think I'm going to take a dip in the pool. The other great thing about Vino Verde is that it is lower in alcohol than your average wine. Oh. And that helps too. And Joe, the, the trend in the industry has been toward lower alcohol wines. I think it's a good trend. Lower alcohol wines go better with food. And just from a responsibility and safety aspect, I think going with something like a Vino Verde is a great choice. And the other thing I would bring to pass at a party, I would bring a rosé. A dry rosé, without a doubt. Rosé goes with everything. What about the dudes that don't drink peak wine? Well, you know what? You could just tell them to go pound sand because they got to get over it. Okay? Uh, there's a movement, actually, called the brosé movement. Oh. Men who, yeah, men who are secure enough with themselves to enjoy pink wine. Uh, you know, if they, if they don't like to drink pink wine, they can just call it coral wine. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> but dry rosé literally goes with everything. And, you know, like pumpkin beer, you can now buy dry rosé year-round. Well, I was I was thinking about that. I want to ask you something about that in a second, but I want to go back to what you said earlier about the lower alcohol content of some wines. I saw something similar just recently in the beer industry is doing the same thing. These all day IPAs where you mm -hmm. can drink it all day and, and not get drunk. Looks like we're headed there. Is that just across the board something we're seeing? You know, I think it is because I think we are seeing the same thing in wine without a doubt. You know, you mentioned beer. Canned wine is another growing phenomenon. Wow, really? Yeah. And you're going to, you're going to see that you're going to see it soon if you haven't seen it already. And one of the unique aspects of canning wine is because you have to be careful about the corrosiveness. They, the wines almost have to be lower alcohol. And also you've probably seen the huge trend with uh, alcoholic seltzers. Oh yeah, right. Sure. Those are extremely yes. low alcohol and that's a booming category. So I think wine and beer, they all have to keep up. 
And I think they're all trying to come out with products for these people because again, I mean, I love, I loved craft beer too. And I love high alcohols, Infidels from Lodi, California. But, you know, you can't be drinking those in the summer on the deck because what's going to happen is you're going to pass out. It's going to be six o'clock. You're going to have the sunburn of your life and it's just going to be terrible. I want to go back to your favorite wine. And you mentioned that it's from Portugal first. I didn't, I want to be careful about that. I didn't say it was my favorite. Uh, it was your now, pick. It was my your, pick. It was your pick. I'm sorry. I don't have a favorite wine. I have a favorite wine for every occasion, but I don't have a favorite that's that's I have uh, to be careful about this, Joe. Well said. Very uh, <laughs> diplomatic of you, Dave. So for this occasion, though, from Portugal, a lot of people, you know, that don't know wine, don't know all the different countries that wines are made in. You know, you hear France, maybe Napa Valley. Portugal's a good one. What are characteristics? Let's walk through a few different countries that you like and kind of good wines that come from those different countries to have a little fun. Well, you know, another European country you know, long time old world producer where you can find a lot of great values is Spain on the Iberian Peninsula. Again, these are wines that are struggling for market share. So you can usually get them for a better price than you can wines of France or Germany. And if you want to get an inexpensive red, you could pick up a Tempranillo from Spain and do really well. There's also a little region of Spain called Priorat, where the wines are, are influenced a lot by Bordeaux. There was a lot of exchange of knowledge and grapes and winemakers over the border. Priorat wines are really nice. You're going to pay more for them, but they're fantastic. If you're someone who likes Napa cabs or like Bordeaux, Priorats are nice. Joe, you're talking about countries that we don't associate with wine production. I mean, we are, we're really living in the, the golden era of beverage alcohol, like we touched upon. And there are countries and regions that we don't associate with wine production that are going through revolutions of quality right now. And you are going to start see, well, right now there are world-class wines being made in places like Slovenia and Moldova, the Czech Republic. You know, you might hear them and you might be saying, well, boy, what, what the heck are they doing? Well, you know what? They're making some great, great wines. I mean, I consider those places kind of like the indie band that you discover right. <laughs> when you find out about a band and it's like, and then you, you grab it, you take it home. You're like, oh, guys, you know, you got to wait, wait till you try this. This stuff is great. You cannot write off any part of the world these days when you're looking for wine. What about closer to home, USA? You know, the focus is always on the West Coast. Sure. I mean, of course, California, Oregon, Washington. I mean, we know that. But heck, you know, the, the fourth largest grape producing state in the country now is the great state of Texas. I mean, you know that. Isn't that amazing? It just is. And, and by the way, I've been to Texarkana when I lived there, used to have a uh, wine festival and I would go around there and, you know, there'd be 20 different wineries, 18 of them. I absolutely hated, but there were always two that were, were pretty good, were pretty good stuff. And I was surprised by some of the wines, like a good um, Sangiovese, like people think of Chianti's. There was this one Sangiovese from Texas, of all things, that I thought was pretty, pretty good. Yeah. You know, states like Texas and also like Michigan too, you know, they make uh, a lot of wine up there in the upper peninsula, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Virginia, you know, they've started out a couple of decades ago, but once they figure out what they're doing, I mean, the wines just get better and better and better. And I can tell you, you know, my organization, we have members around the country, chapters around the country. They're very open-minded when it comes to wine from the other 47. And there are, there are just, just like we've talked about other countries that we don't associate with wine production, but wherever the stackers are out there, you know, they should really give their in-state wine industry a shot and check them out and see what they're doing. 
Yeah, that's fun. I was just in northern Michigan uh, a few weeks ago with friends in wine country on the Leelanau Peninsula and had so much fun. Oh, just yeah. just a great time being with the winemakers. You're talking about the, to the people that own these places. Everybody's passionate about it. And of course, you're in this beautiful area. That's half the fun of wine for me. I want to ask about going into the wine shop, though. So I know nothing. You gave me a great choice from Portugal. You told me rosé is fantastic. And uh, guys can change, you know, change it to look a different color if they want. Uh, by the way, I love rosés. I think that's, you know, and for outdoors too, at a picnic, rosé, oh, perfect. But if I don't know wines, I've got like, you know, Kroger down at the end of my street here has so many different wines. And all I know is the price. And then number two is there's this number between one and a hundred. And they're always talking about, you know, this wine's a 92, this oh, okay. wine's a 91. Mm -hmm. What does a 91 mean? What does a 92 mean? Should I go for the wine that's closest to a hundred and costs less than 10 bucks? I'll tell you what, if you're really lost, I think scores and the shelf talkers you see in a wine retailer, I think it can be a good guide. I mean, if a wine has got a 90 from Spectator and Enthusiast and James Suckling, chances are it's a pretty solid wine, but I don't want people to think that they need to rely on scores or that if they buy a wine that got a 91 from someplace and they don't like it, that there's something wrong with their taste buds. It's not. It's really just one person's objective opinion. You know, when it comes to wine, if you're really lost and you're just buying a wine for yourself, you could just try for under $15, you're going to pick a wine and you can check it out and start to focus on what you like as an individual. Some of the work that's being done now by Tim Hanai and Jamie Good, they've been applying some of the most recent research in sensory and perception and applying it to wine tasting. And one of the things they're showing is that, you know, we all live on our own sensory world. And you and I might both be here in the basement. We might be sharing a wine. But, you know, we're experiencing completely different things. Hmm. So don't ever think because somebody tells you, well, you really should like this. And if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Or this wine got a 91. You know, you absolutely need to like it. You know, find out what you like and then move from there. The thing about buying wine now that wasn't true 30 years ago is that the majority of wines on the market are sound wines. And by sound, I mean there wasn't a mistake that was made during the winemaking process. Wines are pretty clean and the wine that you buy is most, most likely going to taste the way that the winemaker intended it to taste when you brought it home. And also, if you mentioned Kroger, I don't know what the wine staff is like in a Kroger, but if you go to a, a retailer, one of the big chain retailers like BevMo or a mom and pop wine shop, those people know a lot. The good ones can ask you four or five questions about your personal tastes, and they can connect you with something that you're probably going to like. So don't be afraid to ask for help. That's a great idea, especially since wine can be so playful, Dave, you know, just to your point, just go try one. And how better to try than have somebody that works there point you in the right direction. That's right. Or, yeah. you know, you can join a chapter of the American Wine Society and go to tastings every month. Yeah, see, that would be fun, too. That'd be that'd be that'd be way fun. We'll talk about that more here in a second. I do want to ask you this. You know, they have this thing about pairing wines. Different wines taste better with different foods. Oh, absolutely. It's true. It doesn't mean that because a pairing works for most people, it's going to work for everybody. But generally, yeah, the right wine is going to go better with food. And I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, we always talk about Cabernet with beef. You know, you want to have a big red wine with red meat. Well, one of the reasons for that is because red wines have tannins and tannins scavenge the proteins off of your tongue. So if you're eating a piece of meat, taking a sip of wine, 
as you go back and forth, it's like every bite is your first bite because you have sort of this, you have the wine kind of cleansing it and getting this, getting your saliva glands working. And then you go back and taste the meat. So there is a, there is a truth to it. My wife and I just went to a, was a, a multi-course lobster dinner. It was so mm-hmm. decadent. And they had a, they had a bar, but they, they were not selling a Chablis. And a Chablis is a type of a Chardonnay. And actually they didn't even have a Chardonnay. And I thought, well, how strange is this that they're having a lobster dinner, but at the cash bar, they're not selling the wine that is this classic pairing, you know, Chablis, an oak Chardonnay with lobster. Or another classic pairing is uh, raw oysters and muscadet. Wait, I love. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Before, before, you, before you go there, what, I mean, the Chablis was what they were pairing. Did, did they just not know what they were doing or, or did they have something better? Did they have a different, no, they better pair? No, they didn't. Well, they had a, they had a cash bar. So you'd go up to the cash bar yes. and get a wine. So I was looking at what they had. They had the normal, you know, white Zinfandel, Pinot Gris, yeah. uh, Moscato. And I was like, you know, none of this is really going to work. I'm like, man, if they just had, you know, even a $15, $20 Chablis, I'd, you know, I'd pay $10 a glass for a decent Chablis just yeah. to be able to enjoy it with these courses. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just thought there was a different ending there that they had no. paired it with something better. But no, it no, was actually, it was just I generally got, disappointing. I know the owner and I talked to him at a separate function. He's like, oh, you know, Dave, when something like that comes up, you know, tell me because, you know, I, I'm open to the information. I'm open to the suggestions. I would totally do that if you had asked. I hate when I go into a seafood place that sells a lot of oysters and they don't have muscadet on the menu. And muscadet is this very acidic wine from the Atlantic coast of the Loire Valley in France. And oysters and muscadet are considered a classic pairing. The vines from muscadet grow on ancient fossilized oyster beds. Hmm. It's just this perfect circle. You have them together. And, and I'll go out, get a bunch of oysters, and I'll be like, you have a wine list here, but how come there's no muscadet on it? Best type with a hamburger this coming weekend? Oh, you're going to have hamburger? Um, you could go with, this time of year, I'd go with a lighter red. So I might go with a Pinot Noir a Chianti, which is generally Sangiovese. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Sangiovese. I think those are your best choices. Or maybe a Gamay slash Beaujolais. Okay. And then uh, hot dogs, is that different? Yeah. Believe it or not, white Zinfandel is considered a pretty suitable pairing for <laughs> hot dogs <laughs> if you want to go there. <laughs> or <laughs> nothing wrong with white Zinfandel. Or uh, you could stick with dry rosé. Yeah. And then some of those sides, things like potato salad and coleslaw. I think you're looking at an oaky Chardonnay. Mm, nice. And then last, uh, what about that cake that mom brings? She's got the, the German chocolate cake at oh. the end to top it off. What goes with that? I got it. I got it. Okay. You want to go with a port. <laughs> we're, we're back to Portugal again. <laughs> Now, I don't mean the type of port that mom used to drink drink before she'd go to bed. I'm talking about actual Porto from Portugal. You're not talking about NyQuil. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think port, everything on port is amped up. The sweetness, the alcohol, and the flavor. So you need something like German chocolate cake to pair with it. But you can get ruby ports that are rather inexpensive. And uh, a portion, you'll have to remind mom of this, a portion is just two ounces. Very small. Very small, very small. But with something like German chocolate cake, man, it's going to be great. That's I'm coming a, over. It's a deal. Deal. Let's do it. I, I like having the wine expert because that's one less thing. I've, I got that checked off. Dave's coming. He's got the wine. We're good. We all throw in a little money. We're fine. 
Let's talk about the Wine Society, though. First of all, you in the Wine Society, what first attracted you to wine? How did you get into the world of wine, Dave? Oh, well, you know, one of my first jobs out of college in the early 90s was in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes. And it was when the Finger Lakes were in a, a stage, maybe just like you had mentioned Texas was, when they were making high quality wines, but they were getting better and the region was just getting ready to pop. So I got to know a lot of those guys and I really got the bug for helping people understand wine and maybe de-dramatizing de wine a little bit. I think we dramatize wine in the U.S. a little bit. And I joined the American Wine Society. And after a couple of years, I got on the board of directors and I got more involved. And when the executive director position moved in, I thought it was something that I would enjoy. That's fun. That's cool. And then let's talk about it. You guys have chapters all over the United States, maybe even elsewhere? We do. Right now, just United States and Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah, we have about 180 chapters, coast to coast. They tend to be concentrated in the East, but we have them in most states. And basically, chapters generally get together monthly, and they try wines. I mean, you talked about, you know, trying wines and discovering wines. Well, you know, instead of going to the store and buying five bottles and having to try them all, you know, AWS members go to a meeting once a month, and they usually have a presentation, and then they get to do a tasting of five or more wines. And it really helps people, particularly new wine drinkers, to start to try a bunch of stuff and do what I had mentioned before. Try to identify what you like and think about what, do you, what are you liking about these wines and what are you not liking about these wines. And then you use that and your experience and your information to sort of drive your buying decisions. I think it's also a great way to get to know people in your community too. I mean, as a just a social event, I think that'd be a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, well, Joe, I can tell you, sometimes I tell people, you know, wine is sort of a metaphor of what we do, because when I go and I talk to our members, a lot of times I'll hear stories like, you know, I moved here from out of town and this is how I met all my friends. Or I came back to take care of my sick parents and I started coming here and, you know, now my entire social circle is from this group. So you're right there. You know, there's magical things happen when you share wine. I noticed that in uh, Texarkana, we had a small class with a local wine proprietor super nice guy. And our meetings were always very attentive, Dave, at the beginning while he would lecture. And um, once we started, we asked him, he had all these wines set aside and we'd say, why wouldn't you let us, why can't we sip them while you're, while you're telling us about where these wines are made? He's like, because I won't get through it. <laughs> and sure, and sure enough, the second we started doing the wine pairings, the meetings always became, uh, went from fun to really, really fun. But at the same time, he couldn't keep our attention anymore. <laughs> we started the wine tasting and it became, but it, but it was a really good way to meet people, learn a little bit yeah. about wines, learn a little bit about the world too. I mean, the places where these wines are grown all over the world are fascinating. Oh, you're right. It's like, you know, it's like touring the world with your yeah. mouth. Yeah. Good stuff. And we find out more, by the way, I know you guys have a Facebook page. You also have Twitter. I'll link to those in our show notes page at stackybedjamins.com, but it's uh, AmericanWineSociety.org, correct? That's right. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for helping us make Labor Day much, much better. Oh, great. Thanks a lot, Joe. It was great to be here. Hey there, wine snobs and trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And that fall check guy talking about wine in a bottle thought he was supposed to be an expert or something it's never gonna happen fall check everybody knows that wine comes in boxes and you know it's got spouts and it's bad you know what you know what? it's not it's not polite to berate a guest so i'll uh, just get straight to your trivia 
How about this one? Which member of the English royalty had a hotel manager send out for a bottle of wine because he or she didn't like the hotel's wine selection? I'll be back with the answer right after I show Dave Falchuk the real way to drink wine with a few ice cubes. It's always better cold, Dave, no matter what the color. Well, big thanks to ClearBank for supporting Stacking Benjamins. ClearBank changing the way entrepreneurs raise money with equity-free capital. How's that? There's something right there that a lot of entrepreneurs are looking for. If you're looking for a better way to fund your business, ClearBank provides entrepreneurs capital to grow. They believe that founders shouldn't have to give up a piece of their company to fund marketing and inventory expenses. They make equity-free investments from $10,000 to $10 million and can get you a term sheet in less than 20 minutes. Here's how it works. You apply in minutes by entering your basic business info and linking your marketing and revenue data. You choose what your desired marketing budget is going to be from multiple options that they provide. Then you watch revenue grow as you acquire more customers with your new marketing budget. ClearBank will also offer you more capital as you grow. They charge a small flat fee for the capital and you pay them back. So it's a win-win rev share. This is not a loan. There isn't an interest rate. There's no fixed maturation date, no personal guarantees, no credit checks, no equity, and no board seats required. In 2018, ClearBank invested over $150 million. This year, they're on track to invest, by the way, OG, over a billion dollars. And they have relationships with marketing agencies, e-commerce professionals, venture capitalists, accountants, and more, which will give you a true advantage in the market. We always say it makes sense to know who your partners are. Remember we had Sean Patel on? Just recently here, having the right partners makes all the difference. So if you're doing over $10,000 a month in revenue, find out how you can receive ClearBank capital by getting your 20-minute term sheet at ClearBank. That's ClearBank with a C, -C C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C dot com forward slash S-B. Bank, spelled with a C at the end. That's C-L-E-A-R-B-A-N-C dot com slash S-B. Stop pitching. Get back to doing what you love, growing your business. Hey there, trivia fans. Joe's mom's neighbor Doug here, back at you. And that Dave Falchek guy is just super. Not only did he smile when I put ice in his wine, he also complimented me in the best possible way. He said, and I quote, wow, I thought I'd seen everything. Yeah, you're welcome, Dave. I can show you lots of things you'd never seen before. Anyway, here was today's trivia question. Which member of the English royalty had a hotel manager send out for a bottle of wine because... He uh, or she, you know, he or she didn't like the hotel's wine selection. Fact, it was the monarch herself, Queenie, Queen Elizabeth, who was the picky wine drinker in this story. The incident happened at a private party at the Savoy Hotel in London back in the early 60s. I may or may not have been there for that one. Liz, as uh, her friends call her. Uh, was dissatisfied with the wine selection and asked for some Mateus to be delivered. Don't know who Mateus is, but she wanted that delivered. Leave it to a queen to get picky and get this. The wine she wanted, turns out, was also in a bottle. No wonder the hotel didn't have it. I was never good with history, but I didn't know wine used to come in bottles. Why would they even put... Jeez, that's just weird. That fad's not coming back, though. I'll tell you what, Dave Falchek. It's never coming back in bottles. Too inconvenient. See ya. 
I love how Doug draws from personal experience about the Boxo wine. Liz, I'm sure I'm sure all of her friends call her Liz. Don't you call her Queen Liz? Betsy. Did you watch? I didn't think it was going to be for me, but The Crown. Mrs. OG, I think, would like watching The Crown. Did you watch that show? No. I'm telling you, it's really good. I believe it. I was thinking the other day with all of the stuff that's going on in my world, I figured out that's why I just don't watch TV. Like I have so much to catch up on. You do. I'm so far behind in everything that I have to drop a job, a company or a hobby. Like one of those things I have to get rid of. I played Xbox for 45 minutes for the first time in ages last night. Yeah. Played it for like 40 minutes. And then you know what happened? I fell asleep with the controller in my hand. <laughs> that's how that's how engaged I was. I was like, I'm just going to rest my eyes for a second. Then I woke up about 20 minutes later. Uh, probably time to go to bed. Hey, to go to bed. let's throw out Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. California cabs. Mm, Washington. I'm a big fan of, now that I've been up in the Seattle area a lot, mm-hmm. Washington Reds. Good stuff. Okay. It's actually your loved ones and your time, which is always more fun with a quality red wine in your hand. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. I think you'll be amazed at how easy the process is compared to if you've ever bought life insurance before the way that the way that it used to be. Let's throw out the lifeline today to Peter. Say hi, Peter. Hey guys, I want to take a moment to thank two somethings that are very important to me. Unfortunately, it's not you two oafs, but rather my twice daily hour long commute. If it wasn't for this time wasted and the fact that Pandora only allows me to play Baby Shark three times in any given hour, I wouldn't have a reason to listen to your show. But that's enough about you. Let's talk about me. I wish to find out if I'm fixing to be fingered as a financial fool. A little bit of backstory. My wife and I make decent money. I'm an engineer and she's a consultant. And we've maxed our Roth IRA since we graduated in 2011 and have always hit our 401k matches. Plus, we're not mooching off the in-laws yet. I think we're doing okay. Recently, we cashed out the principal in my Roth IRA and used it to purchase a long-distance rental home with a mortgage, which is cash flowing well. With this success, we went further, taking out a 401k loan to purchase an old farmhouse locally on a lake lot that had a second parcel with a rental home out back. That loan allowed us to make the numbers work in the short-term cash crunch as we waited for our condo to sell, which it did, and we cleared about 50k after three years of ownership. We now own the second rental outright with those rents received more than paying back the five-year 401k loan, and we're now airbnb our historic farmhouses upstairs. That gig is nearly paying for the primary mortgage by itself. A few months in, we've still got the cash from closing laying around, and it's enough to pay back the 401k loan free and clear, or my preference, we can continue to grow our empire by investing in real estate. Are we nuts for taking my Roth reserves out for real estate? Should we have forgotten my 401k for funding? Must I repay my retirement resources rapidly, or are we steadfastly flying towards financial freedom? Wow. Peter brought it. Did you hear the alliteration at the end? I did, just everything about that was well thought out. Insults and all. How many takes do you think? It had to be double digits. There's no way you, you do that you in think, one. Yeah, That was fantastic, Peter. That was really good. Nice, yeah. nice, nice job. Uh, and we this should is, uh, send him a code that doesn't work for his t-shirt just to <laughs> have him call back. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Peter. You got to call and do that again. Weird. Didn't work. Way to uh, way to bring man. it, stackers. That is that's the bar. 
right that's there. That's class A work right there. That's what you got to do. This is an interesting I'm thing. I'm fixing too. Gosh, <laughs> I love using that. Did you, you know, I've lived in Texas almost six years now and you lived there 10. Did you get that into your vernacular? I maybe said it twice. Yeah. And okay. it was a huge it, accident both times. Really? See, I, I think it really just kind of describes what's about to happen. It, it, uh, it just puts a little flavor on you know, no, no, eyes fixing to, you know, and you're like, oh, snap, what was about to happen? Yeah. You know, the yeah. harder one for me, the harder yeah. one for me was always when, when somebody doesn't understand what you're saying and they went, do what? I don't know. Do what was just, yeah, I don't, I've never heard that one. Oh my, th- that was all over Texarkana. Do what? Well, In I'm fact, they were near Texarkana. <laughs> it's like a long ways away from my house. Somebody, somebody in Michigan said it the other day to me, and I went, "Where, where am I?" I thought I was, I thought I was back. Yeah. I've never heard that phrase in Michigan, but in Texarkana, did you ever hear? Did you ever hear the Mike could? Mike, yes. Mike could, yes. And Mike could, yes. And as I've said that, before, hard to put in there. Y'all is fine. I think y'all is yeah. great. I think that makes total sense to me. Much better than you guys, right? Way better. But all y'all blows my f***ing mind. (laughs) I can't get over that one. I can't do it. But anyway, let's get to Peter's question. All right. Very important here. So I guess here's one way to think about it. When it comes to the Roth in particular, your Roth was presumably invested in some investment, right? You had a mutual fund. You had a stock account. You had something. And real estate is another investment. So I guess in one one line of thinking, you took your diversified Roth IRA investment and transferred it into a single under-diversified real estate investment, right? I mean, it's still an investment. It's just a different asset class. So I have less of an issue with that, although I sure hope it's not owned by your Roth IRA. Yeah. You know, with all of that kind of craziness that goes on with that, I hope, if anything, I just hope you just took the money out and it is what it is at that point. I want to hear the rest of this, but I want to jump in on that point that you just made because I think that this is really important. If you want to stay wealthy, diversify. If you want to become wealthy on your money, under diversify. Now, there's a big problem with that second half of that statement. Because when you under diversify, all you're doing is increasing the standard deviation. And what that means is your investment is more likely to either go through the roof or go in the toilet. So, so under diversification, like as an example, Dave Ramsey, let's take him as, as a big example. He tells his followers to be diversified and to pay off their debts, right? That will never get you rich. What it will do is it will keep you from being poor and it will give you a solid foundation. Dave Ramsey did not get rich following that advice. Dave Ramsey got rich by creating one company, one company and risking his butt on the fact that he thought he could grow that company. Well, it's almost the same as like people that are paid a whole bunch in equity compensation, stock compensation. Yeah. That always works out one of two ways. I was just having this conversation a week ago with somebody. It never works out like, hey, you know, I worked for that company for like 30 years and they gave me stock options all the time and I made like 20 grand. You know, <laughs> you made 6 million or it all crashed and you got nothing out of it. There's very rarely have I run into, you know, a situation where 
where somebody's paid with equity, where it didn't turn into one of those two things. Yeah. So you have to account for that. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, it's like the tree analogy. If you look at any tree and see where it starts branching out, you can see how big and sturdy that tree is. So you look at like something like a sequoia, right? Or a giant redwood and you go, okay, they don't branch out until they're 150 feet in the air. They concentrated all of their growth into just getting big and then they branched out. Whereas take a smaller tree, a pear tree, it almost branches out almost immediately off the ground. And so 30 mile an hour wind is not even going to bend, move iota, a uh, sequoia tree, but, you know, it'll uproot a pear tree in a hurry. Doesn't mean it's wrong. They both are good trees. Anyways, the downside to taking the money out of the Roth, as you've already figured out, is that um, that money's not tax deferred anymore and it's not tax free anymore. And that's some pretty powerful stuff that you gave up by having it go away. So I'm less excited about that for that reason. And kind of to do- just a second to dovetail on that, unlike your 401k loan, which I'll address in a second, you can't make that back up. You can't take the money out of the Roth and go, cool, I'm going to put all that money back. You know, once that year went by, you're done with that year's contribution. So, I mean, just to be clear, it sounds like he did great. It sounds like things worked out. I do think he's flying toward financial independence. I think it it all worked out the right way. Here's what I don't know. I don't know because during the same time, the stock market did really well. I don't know what the opportunity cost was. In other words, he had a ton of gyrations with his money and a lot of hands-on work with his money. Had he stayed a passive investor in the stock market, I don't know what the difference in his net worth would be between the two of those. Yeah. Well, you know, and this is the thing when it comes to real estate investing, I think that people overemphasize. You know, we look at the cash flow, right, and say, hey, you know, I've got this rental property. It's cash flowing great. I'm getting... 500 bucks a month, or I'm getting a thousand dollars a month, but the investment component into it might only be growing at 3% a year or 4% a year, you know, in terms of the appreciation, all investments total return around the same, you know, a stock investment is going to give you 10% real estate investments, give you 10 or 12%, you know, small companies going to give you 10 or 12%. So it's just, how do you want your money? If you take a stock investment, you're mostly getting your money via capital appreciation. If you take a fixed investment like a like a real estate piece of property, you're getting most of your return, most of your gain is coming in cash flow. It works out to about the same. Where real estate helps exaggerate that is through the use of leverage. And like you said before, this can be a blessing and a curse. This can be the side of like ultra, you know, growth or it can be the thing that causes you great financial damage in a hurry if it doesn't work out as well. I think what I would do with the rest of it is this. I'd rather you paid off your 401k loan and keep these two things 100% separate. You know, you've got your retirement plan at work. You've got your equity investing, your stock investing. You know, that part of your portfolio is there. And now you've created this part of your portfolio over here, which is your, uh, you know, budding real estate umpire. So think of these two things as two separate businesses. You know, you borrowed from one business to get the other business started, but just like the bank, that other business is going to want their money back. So I would pay that back and just never think about that again. And then from now on, as you want to grow your real estate business, use the business revenue 
in this case, the profitable cash flow and the equity that is produced by other people paying down your mortgage and that sort of stuff, use that as the seed capital for the next deal or the next deals. That's kind of how I would pre, you know, approach it. Um, you took a big risk by taking money out of one side to start a new company, basically. So get back to risk neutral and get that money back to where it goes. You won. You already won the game. Even if all you did was pay off the loan, never added another property again, you guessed right. Right. Like you concentrated and you guessed and it, and it was right. So take lock it, lock it in and then turn around. And, you know, if you want to continue to grow now, grow more appropriately. That's my two cents. Thanks for the question, Peter. Sorry, you couldn't get uh, baby shark to play more often. So you're stuck listening to us. Uh, but the good news is I like watching your, your daughter sing that song, by the way. Very funny. Me too. It's awesome. On replay. Over and over and over and over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. But Peter, to make it worth your time, we are sending you a greatest money show on earth t-shirt sponsored by our friends over at Haven Life. That's going to do it for today. A couple things. Number one, I am going to be in Whitefish next week, Montana, meeting up with a couple stacker families. If you'd like to join us, just email me, joe at stackybenjamins.com. And uh, I'll tell you where and when we are meeting, but it'd be fun if if you live in the Whitefish, Montana area. Don't know how often I get to say that, OG, but if you're going to be there, we're going to, we're going to be hanging out for a little bit on Labor Day. So uh, come hang out with uh, Cheryl and I and a few other like-minded friends. It's going to be a good time. You going to fly up there and meet with us, OG? As always, I was not invited. As You're always invited. I doubt that's true. In fact, on my way there, I even invited myself to your house and you disinvited me. I didn't. I just said I wasn't going to be there. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's probably the definition. But said other people will be at my house. You're more than welcome to hang out with them. Absolutely. Would, well, and we which, like, they, which actually you'd probably rather do. It would, absolutely. I'll take Mrs. OG over you any day. But if people need good financial planning help, they'd much rather have you than Mrs. OG. Because of the fact that you've got all those credentials behind your name. But if you're somebody looking for good financial help, OG's team is taking clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned on this episode? Sure thing, Joe. I'll tell everybody what they should have learned today. First, take some advice from Dave Falchek. Looking for a good low-cost wine? Your best bet is to ask the person at the store. Tell them what food you're having and a little about what you like and your price range. Fun wines don't have to be expensive to make your Labor Day more fun. Second, cannabis stocks? Still the wild, wild west. Buyer beware. But the big lesson... I could never figure out how Joe's mom knew so much about wine. But then I found this huge store of wine and bottles behind the canned peaches. Bottles. Weird. Special thanks to Dave Falchek for stopping by to talk vino with us. Want more information on the American Wine Society? Head to AmericanWineSociety.org or... Find the link in our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. 
Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks also to Joe's mom for pouring me another glass of this wine from a bottle. A bottle! Genius! Uh, you know, maybe there is something to this. This could, uh, you know, definitely be the next big thing in wine. Like, uh, you know, uh, hashtag wine, not just in boxes anymore. Could be a thing. You know, I realized yesterday, I thought, man, OG hasn't shared any movies lately. He hasn't shared any. And then I realized why that's the case. And that's because you're flying planes. That you, we're not going to get any more. We're going to. It's all about priorities. We're, yeah. We're, we're going to rarely get a, get a movie, but I don't want to talk about that. Damn. Cause I like talking about it. Well, it's we, so fun. I know, but we kicked off this thing with uh champagne with a great champagne commercial. Speaking of alcoholic beverages and Labor Day, how about this? Bud Light presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. This 4th of July, we salute you, Mr. Gasoline Barbecue Stutter. Mr. Gasoline Barbecue Stutter. Never mind charcoal chimneys and easy lighting briquettes. The only way to start a real barbecue is with a gallon of 93 octane and a big book of matches. Light up the sky. Who needs eyebrows? You're hungry. And you've got seven pounds of lamb shanks ready to go. That's a lot of kebabs. You don't just defy convention. You defy warning labels and common sense. Very low IQ. So crack open a nice cold Bud Light, oh prince of the pyrotechnics, because no one makes a backyard mushroom cloud like you. Mr. Gasoline Barbecue Starter. Bud Light Beer, Anheuser-Busch, Cartersville, Georgia. So funny. I miss those commercials so much. Yeah, that was good, good advertising. Yes, and uh, cautionary tale for this uh, Labor Day. We'll have another cautionary tale. OG's last soiree last year, he'll have his top five uh, ways that that you might know from his past experience that your Labor Day party was too frugal. So we'll have that coming up. See you.
Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.